Have you ever stopped at a, sat at a stoplight and wondered whether to wait or not? Years ago, I was, uh, was spent a night putting flooring down in the basement of our house. I had started earlier in the day, but it was taking longer than I expected. Back then, it was a, a laminate form of board, and the, the boards, they didn't click together like they do today. Instead, you had to glue them and strap them. And so I had rented straps for 24 hours to do so. But the day hadn't gone so well, and it was taking longer than I expected. And so I decided that I would work through the night, and I'd just take breaks between each board, not wanting to rent the straps for another day. Truthfully, I didn't sleep that night. But the floor was coming together nicely. In fact, it wasn't until the early hours of the morning that I started to run into difficulty. You see, it's just that as I neared that final wall, more and more of the boards needed to be cut. Well, as I cut one of the boards lengthwise, the circular saw caught and kicked back into my other hand that was holding the board. Blood shot up the wall and onto the ceiling. I, I grabbed my hand. I ran upstairs. I didn't want to get blood on the carpet. I figured Shelly wouldn't be happy with that. So I ran to the, the bathroom. And as blood started to fill the bathtub, I called for Shelly to, to wake up. I told her I needed to go to the hospital. But then I knew the tip of my finger was only being held on by a little piece of skin. I could see the bone. Well, Shelly quickly got us moving. But as we made our way out of Keswick at that time towards the hospital, she got stopped at a stop line, stoplight. It, it wasn't sunrise yet. There was not a car in sight. And frantically, she started to look both ways. She, she looked like she was going to treat it like a four-way stop. But the light was red. Sure, it wouldn't have hurt anyone, but it wasn't right. So I insisted that she wait. Well, have you ever been tempted to run a red when no one was around? Telling yourself, it isn't a big deal. Or who would even know or care? Well, sadly, most temptations have a way of doing that, don't they? A way of playing with our minds, causing us to make excuses and rationalize whatever it is. After all, if we're tempted to do something, it's desirable to us in some way. There, there's at least a part of us that wants to do it. If we weren't, if there wasn't, we wouldn't be tempted. Whether that's to watch things on YouTube that would violate Philippians 4, where Paul tells us to think on what is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely, or whether it's to lie to protect ourselves or make ourselves look better, or, or the temptation to get revenge or, or exact our anger. We know we shouldn't. We know it's not right. When it comes to anger, we know that God has called us to be slow to anger and quick to listen. We know Proverbs 10 tells us that when there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, but he who restrains his lips is wise. That Proverbs 17 says he who restrains his words is knowledgeable, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. But in the moment, we want to say something. We have an urge to, and we often give in to that temptation to not hold back. Well, regardless of what the temptation is, one thing is for sure, temptation can be difficult, can't it? It's often persistent. It, it doesn't seem to go away. And, and sadly, more than we care to admit, we give in and we do things we know we shouldn't. Well, today we come to a passage that's meant to encourage us in the face of temptation. If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me back to Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, this time chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. Over the last several weeks, we've been making our way through this book, a, a book that was written to a group of believers that were struggling in their faith and were tempted to turn back to their former Jewish beliefs. Back in chapter 2, the author, he had called us to pay careful attention to the faith, lest we drift away from it. In chapter 3, he told us to hold fast our confidence and our boasting in the hope. And in chapter 4, we were told to take care to enter God's rest, to take care to enter heaven. 
the author, wanting them and us to endure, wanting God to find us true believers on the day we would stand before him, knew that the way we could do that was to hold fast and not give up. You see, it's just that he knew that life was difficult, that persecutions and challenge and troubles and struggles would come. And if we weren't careful, they would derail us. And so he wrote to give them and us reasons why they ought to hold fast. Back in chapter 1, you'll remember he did so by showing us how great Jesus is. In fact, to highlight how great, he told them that Jesus was greater than the greatest spiritual being he could think of, the angels. That while the angels were servants of the Most High God, Jesus was the Son of God, part of the Godhead, very God of very God, the creator of everything, the one who holds everything together and has no beginning or no end. But that wasn't all. No, the author didn't end with Jesus' divinity, but instead he then pointed to his humanity, telling us that Jesus was made like us, that he, was, that he became a man, and not just any man, but the greatest man. Pointing to Moses, the greatest man the author could think of, he showed them how Jesus was superior. The author, he wanted us, his, his reader, to be blown back by the wonder of the Lord and Savior they served, to be awestruck by him and who he was, to the point that turning back, not holding fast to our faith, would be seen for what it was, pointless giving up something great for something that was far less. But still, he wasn't done. After all, not only is our Savior great, but what he promises is great. And so in chapter 4, at the beginning of that, he urged them and us to enter God's rest. In essence, he says, not only does Jesus deserve your attention, but following is the only way to enter his rest, the only way to enter heaven. And so they, and we ought to do everything we can to make sure that we enter it. Well, with that being the case, he turned his attention to the primary way, the, the primary way we could do everything to make sure we enter heaven and tells them and us to allow God's word to penetrate their lives and stop them from being disobedient or hardened enough to not be able to enter heaven. Well, it's as he talks about God's word, keeping our hearts soft, pointing to the sin that we need to deal with, that he tells them this, that he tells them that God's word, the Bible is living and active sharper than a double-edged sword, piercing to the vision of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Last week, Pastor Russell spoke of that and, and asked how we would feel if all our sins were put on the screen behind me for everyone to see, exposed. How, how terrible that would be, how ashamed we would be. And yet they are all exposed to God and God's word reveals them. Like Isaiah, when he sees God in his glory, who falls on his face in Isaiah 6 and says, woe is me for I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the king. Like Adam and Eve after they've sinned and realize they sin and realize their nakedness and run and hide in shame. The word of God, it just reveals who we are, how far from God we are. It expresses how filthy sin makes us and shows us how much we need him. Well, as the author thinks about that, it's as if he realizes how his audience will take it. That if they were even to get a glimpse of how sinful they were, that they'd be overcome. And suddenly they realize that they were in trouble that they were drowning and desperately needed help. I remember one particular day back when I was in Bible college, I was lifeguarding in the pool, and two of these two kids from the, the low-income housing development in the area had come to the pool that day. They were playing around in the, the shallow, and they were having a blast doing so. 
But as I watched them, I realized that as they were playing, they were moving farther and farther into the pool and closer and closer to the deep end. Before I could stop them, they were suddenly in over their head. They quickly clung to each other and they tried to climb up each other to get another breath. Well, like them, hearing the word of God, hearing what the word of God does would have caused this audience to realize that they had a problem, that they needed help, that they were in over their head. For the Jews, the idea of sin, it was far from new. They knew how to deal with it. They knew where to go, who to go to. They knew they needed a priest. They knew they needed a priest. And so the author's thoughts naturally moved to talk about how as a believer, Jesus is our high priest in the section we want to look at today. The author, he wanted to assure them that they had the means to deal with their naked, exposed sinfulness, a way to deal with it before God, the God that they would one day stand before and have to give account. A high priest who was greater than anyone who had come or would ever come. If you would follow along as I read, starting in verse 14 of chapter 4. The author writes this, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. As a pastor, one of the things I get to do is perform weddings. I always enjoy that moment when the bride enters and all the audience eyes turn to her. She's normally radiant and they are fixed on her. But that's not where I like to look. Instead, I like to look to the groom. Their face lights up in an incredible way when the first time they see their bride. Well, you got to think that the same sort of awe and wonder likely fell on the disciples' faces at some of the great biblical events. Think of Jesus' ascension, when he went back into heaven after he had rose from the dead. Certainly, the sight of Jesus raising up into heaven was one that no one would forget. The disciples' eyes must have been fixed on him and what was happening. The book of Acts tells us that they were gazing into heaven as he went. We can only imagine the expression on their faces as they watched in wonder as the glowing cloud began to dim and the angel told them that they needed to get going. Well, no doubt that memory, it imprinted in their minds. And so when trouble came, it, it gave them comfort. It motivated them to hang on in the most difficult of circumstances. Here in Hebrews, the writer starts with that image, mentioning Jesus' ascension to encourage them 
telling them that because Jesus, their Savior and Lord, is a great high priest who has ascended through the heavens and is now before God, they should hold fast to their confession in their faith. The author, he wants them and us to be committed to Jesus, holding to our confession of him, and figures that Jesus' ministry as high priest, if it's understood and believed, would help us to do so. And today, when we, we think of a priest, we tend to think of a Catholic pastor with a collar, don't we? But that isn't what the audience of this author would have, at the time, would have thought of. No, as Jews, they knew about the priesthood. The priests were the ones that worked in the temple, the, the ones that represented the people before God, the ones that offered sacrifices on behalf of the people. Well, as great as they may be, as, as great as the highest priest may be, the author here is clear that Jesus is greater. And because he's the greater high priest, we can hold fast. In fact, the author highlights for us at least three reasons Jesus' priesthood, his high priesthood, should encourage us to hold fast. Notice the first one. We should hold fast to our confession because we have a great high priest who sympathizes with us in our weakness. We have a great high priest, Jesus, who sympathizes with us in our weakness. Among the priests that served in the temple, there was a high priest, a, a priest whose job was to enter the Holy of Holies, the place where God was thought to dwell, to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people on the Day of Atonement once a year. And the high priest was always chosen from among them. He was one of them which was important because it enabled others to relate to him and him to relate to others. After all, while he might have been a good man, he was still a sinner just like them. In fact, so much so that the author reminds us that he even had to offer sacrifices for his sin before entering the Holy of Holies. Slaughtering a bull, he would lay his hands on its head. He'd confess his sins. The Mishnah, a book that records some of the Jewish oral traditions, records this prayer by the priest. O oh God, I've committed iniquity and transgressed and sinned before you. I and my house and the children of Aaron, your holy people. O oh God, forgive, I pray, the iniquities and transgressions and sins which I've committed and transgressed and sinned before you. I and my house. And it was only after doing this, after taking care of his own sin, that the priest would even dare to go offer a sacrifice for the people. After all, that, to enter God's presence, not having dealt with his sin, while well, it would likely be fatal. Well, given that fact and the fact that he didn't want to die, if there was anyone that would be acutely aware of their sin, it had to be the high priest. Few would be as diligent, especially on the Day of Atonement, as there was no way he'd want to enter the Holy of Holies in an unworthy manner. Well, it was that awareness of his sin that the author tells us here that enabled him to sympathize with those that he was representing. After all, like them, he knew what it was to be tempted. He knew what it was to fail, to, to make mistakes. Sometimes he lost his cool. Sometimes he was controlled by the feelings of others. As the author here says in, in five, chapter 5, verse 2, he was beset with weakness. Simply put, he knew what it was to live like them. He sometimes got ill. He suffered trauma. He got tired. He ate too much. He aged. He knew what it was to feel stupid or get down or depressed. And, and because he did, because of his solidarity with them and his awareness of his sin, the author tells us that he was able to deal gently with the wayward. That word gently, it means wise, patient restraint. It means compassion. So as a high priest, he wasn't too harsh, nor was he too lax on those that were wayward. Now, don't hear the author wrong. The author isn't saying the high priest could identify with those that were in outright defiance. 
Nor is he saying that he had compassion on those that were willfully rebelling against God, deliberately choosing a life of sin. But when it came to those that were trying to follow God and yet struggling, he had compassion. He, he understood simply because he was in the same boat as they were. Well, here we're told that Jesus, even though he was perfect, like a high priest, can sympathize with us in our weakness. Truthfully, if you've grown up in the church or even been in the church for any length of time, it's unlikely that you've ever thought about how incredible that statement is. But that fact, it wouldn't have been lost on those that lived in the ancient world. Instead, it would have been astonishing to them. You see, it's just that back then, virtually no one thought that God could identify with us as humans, not even the Jews. Instead, in the Old Testament, God's dealing with his people were more indirect, more distant. Rarely did faithful believers experience God's closeness like believers do now. Most of the Jews believed that God was incapable of sharing the feelings of humans. He was just too far removed to identify with our feelings. So the idea that, that God would sympathize with us was astounding. So if it was hard for the Jews, you got to think it was even harder for the non-Jews of that day. The Stoics, uh, the philosophy that dominated much of the Greek and Roman society at that time, believed that God's primary attribute was apathy. Some even believe that God had no feelings or emotions of any sort. The Epicureans, the rival philosophical group to the Stoics, believe that God dwelled in a space between the worlds, completely detached. So for them, for the non-Jews too, the idea that God could relate, would identify with us, was shocking. What's more, that a perfect, holy, sinless God would understand what it meant to be tempted? Well, that was even more incredible. Today, when we think of temptation, we tend to think of being drawn to something or enticed to do something that's wrong. Often we think of it in its most graphic forms, sexual sin, pride, stealing, cheating, outbursts of anger. But temptation includes anything that goes against God's will. Consider what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. There, Jesus, he, as one of the sins he was highlighting, he told us that to lust after a woman is to commit adultery in the heart. Jesus, he wasn't saying that a man who sees an attractive woman is lusting. He wasn't calling men to, to not notice or not look at anyone else. He was calling men not to look at a woman with lustful intent. Every man, if they're honest, knows when that line is crossed. And when it does, though they don't commit adultery physically, as far as God is concerned, the man is still committing adultery. In, in other words, millions and millions of people who have never committed adultery in the flesh have done so in their heart. Well, the same thing is true when it comes to to anger and hate and killing and, and a host of other sins. In other words, it's not just our actions, but our thoughts, our thought life as well, that can be sinful. And here the author is saying that Jesus, God, a very God, perfect in thought and action, can sympathize with us in those temptations because he's experienced every temptation that we have faced. Now, don't hear me wrong. The author, he isn't saying that Jesus has experienced every individual temptation you have faced. Jesus wasn't tempted to run a red light. He didn't experience the temptation that only women or married people do. In a time without guns, he was never tempted to shoot another person in cold blood. He wasn't tempted to rip off an insurance company or embezzle funds through electronic bank fraud or watch internet porn or R-rated movies. None of those things existed in the first century. But sin's essential nature did, and it hasn't changed. And that is something that he experienced in spades. In fact, he experienced temptation in a greater way than we ever will, and yet he did not sin. So I can hear someone say, well, come on, Chad, how can that be? I mean, if Jesus never sinned, 
How can he really understand me and my temptation? One commentator responded to that this way. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of, the, of an army by fighting against it, not giving in. You find the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like after an hour. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. No one was ever tempted like Jesus was. Back in Genesis 4, we come across Cain and Abel, two brothers. We're, we're told that Cain got upset, angry that God accepted Abel's sacrifice, not his. You know the story. And eventually Cain in anger kills Abel. But before he does so, God says to, them th to him this, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Well, Jesus knew what it was to have sin crouching at the door, ready to pounce. And yet he also knew what it was to rule over it. You know, what's more, even though Jesus never sinned, he knew the shame and despair and guilt that sin causes. He had felt its power, the pervasive hopelessness that it could bring. How so? Well, it's just that as Jesus died on the cross and wave after wave of our sin was poured on him, as a tsunami of sinful filth flooded over him, he felt its effect. In fact, no one has ever felt it as severely as he did. On the cross, he bore our sins. He saw our sins as his own. And so more than any other priest, he understands and is able to deal gently with sinners being fully aware of the sense of personal defilement that sin leaves. Friends, don't miss it. Jesus doesn't just imagine how you feel. He feels it. Truly, that is true even when it, comes, when it doesn't involve temptation. There is just nothing you're going through that Jesus doesn't sympathize with. And after all, like the high priest, Jesus lived as we lived. He too knew what it was to age, to get tired, to have a headache, to have to learn. He knew what it was to be troubled as he knelt in the garden before he'd go to the, the night before he'd go to the cross and was troubled and struggled. He, he knew what it was to grieve as he stood outside the tomb of one of his friends with tears running down his face. He got frustrated when his disciples didn't get it, like we get frustrated when our kids don't get it. He got angered when the temple was treated poorly. He experienced disappointment with those closest to him. He knew what it was to be saddened by betrayal, to be falsely accused and treated poorly. So he can sympathize with us in every danger, in every trial, in every situation that comes our way. Because he's been through it all. There is an emotion you feel that Jesus doesn't know. Before he became a man as God, he knew all things. But he hadn't experienced them the way we do. But when Jesus took on flesh, he could. Jesus had a human body like we do. He had a human mind like us. He went through life like us. Did you know that if you have two pianos in the same room and a note is struck on one, the same note will gently respond on the other, though not touched by a human's hand. It's called sympathetic resonance. Well, like that, because Jesus became a man, his body became his instrument, if you will. When a chord is struck 
in the weakness of our human lives, in our body, in our piano, our instrument, it resonates in his. He feels it. In fact, as one author put it, there is no note we can play, no melody or dirge or minor key, no dissonant note that doesn't cause a sympathetic resonance in Jesus. It all affects him. After all, while he mastered his body, while he mastered his instrument, he took his body with him to heaven. In other words, you're not alone. You're never alone if you're a believer in your struggle. Because even when no one else is there, Jesus is there and he understands. As you know, last year, our former foster child, 19-year-old, passed away. As a church, I couldn't have asked for more support. But I still struggle that nobody really understood what it was like to have a kid whose life was taken by another. And one day I remember sitting in tears and crying to God, saying, God, no one understands. No one knows what this is like. The pain doesn't go away. And God simply responded with, I know. And it hit me. He did know. He had experienced it in Jesus. He understood. And because Jesus is one with the Father, he too knows. So if you're a believer today, be encouraged. You have a high priest who's able to sympathize with you. Well, for the church of that day and for you and I, the church of today, that ought to bring us comfort to know our Savior knows what life is like, what the struggle of life is like. He knows how strong the pull of sin is. He's experienced it all and he understands. Still, as great as that is, greater still is the fact that not only do we have a Savior who's been there, but we have a Savior who is there for us. You see, just as the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies once a year, the place where God was thought to be, to deal with the people's sins, Jesus entered into heaven, into the very eternal presence of God to represent us. The difference is, while the priest would leave the Holy Holies, not to return for a year, Jesus never left God the Father's presence. He is there right now, making a way for us to draw near ourselves. To draw near, as the author put it, in our time of testing, when we're struggling and sin is crouching at the door. In other words, you and I, we could do what the Jews never could do. We can boldly, with frankness, enter God's presence in prayer. Well, under the old covenant, only one person was allowed into God's presence once a year. Under the new, under Jesus, every believer can continually, with confidence, enter, knowing that God will not only accept them based on what Jesus has done, but will be there to help us. In fact, here we're promised that when we draw near, we'll receive mercy and grace. Mercy when we fall, forgiveness when we sin, grace when we are tempted and tested, all of which we desperately need. You know, I think we miss that at times. Instead, we try to do it on our own. We come to passages like 1 Corinthians 10 that reads, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And we assume that when we read that, that that means that we can handle temptation on our own. But I don't think that's what Paul was getting at. No, instead, I think Paul was saying that no temptation is beyond your ability when you're leaning on Jesus. After all, left to my own, left to my own strength, when I try to do it on my own, any temptation can undo me. But when I enter God's presence and receive grace from our Savior, who has been there and is there for me, I'm empowered to resist it. Sadly, despite that, I can't tell you how often believers ignore this promise altogether. One commentator called it undoubtedly the most widely neglected resource for Christians. He writes, it proposes simply and clearly to meet every situation, not with human wisdom, but divine, and not, merely human, not with merely human strength, but God's inexhaustible strength. 
History provides many examples of those who tried this offer and found it eminently true. Yet despite this encouragement from the past and present, many believers look only for human help. And if it's not available, succumb quickly to discouragement, defeat, and despair. These verses are often quoted as part of a Christian's defense provision, but too often forgotten when trouble arrives. And when we do that, we are the worst for it because we rob ourselves of the very help God promises. And still even worse than that, have you ever thought about what it says? I mean, if Jesus promises to help us in the face of temptation and we don't go to him, are we not saying we don't really need him? That we think we can cope on our own? That when we believe in God, we believe we can do this without him? Besides, don't you think if Jesus did that, if he went to prayer when tempted that you and I need to? A fact that the author here highlights for us was he reminds us of Jesus' struggle in the Garden of Gethsemane. At least, I think that's what the author is referring to in verse 7, when he refers to Jesus offering a prayer and supplication with loud cries and tears. After all, on that night, on the night that he would be betrayed and, and he would start that journey to the cross, Jesus was torn. He was filled with sorrow. He was troubled. He was overburdened. He was weighed down. Luke writes, being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. There with his disciples asleep, he asked God to have this cup removed from him if possible. And God heard him. No, God didn't remove the cup or the challenge, the cross that was coming. He didn't do that. Jesus doesn't always remove us from the temptation or trial that we face either. But just as God gave Jesus mercy and strength to do his will and go to the cross, Jesus here promises the grace and mercy we need to endure. For Jesus in that moment, Luke tells us that an angel came from heaven to strengthen him. Well, can anybody miss the message that he was trying, this author was trying to send to this church? Just as Jesus persevered in submissive prayer and Gethsemane was heard, our prayers will be heard if we persevere. Now, maybe that help, it won't come in the form of an angel, but it will come if only we'll draw near to him. Well, notice, not only should we hold fast to our confession because Jesus understands us, but we should hold fast because Jesus is a high priest appointed by God forever. Because he's a high priest appointed by God forever. I hope you noticed as we read, Three times in 10 verses, verse 1, verse 5, verse 10, we're told that the high priest is appointed, that he was designated by God, and that as a high priest, that was true of Jesus as well. You see, it's just that a true high priest had to be appointed by God. It wasn't a position you could sign up for or could be voted into or voted into. You couldn't apply for it. No, you could only assume it after God had called you to it. You had to be God's man for it. In fact, anytime someone tried to take it upon themselves. It just didn't end well. Whether that was in number 16 when Korah and 250 of his followers were swallowed up by the earth for burning unauthorized incense, or when King Saul didn't wait for Samuel to arrive but made a sacrifice of his own and forfeited his reign. It never ended well. No genuine priest ever appointed himself. You had to be God's chosen man. The Jews who were reading this, they knew that. And so they needed to know, was Jesus appointed? That just as God had appointed every other high priest, had he chosen and signed Jesus as a high priest? In other words, was Jesus God's man for the job, the one chosen to offer a sacrifice on their behalf? Because if he wasn't, then he wasn't worth following. If God hadn't authorized his ministry, there was no point to it. Think of it this way. Assume for a minute that I am a football genius. I'm not, but assume I am. 
that I understand the rules of the game. I know the game plan of every team better than anyone else, that I'm an expert. On top of that, assume that I'm a qualified coach and my experience has equipped me to be the perfect coach. Well, would that give me the right to stroll into the Rams locker room this afternoon before the Super Bowl and rhyme off some instructions for them? No, well, I might be the most qualified. I haven't been appointed as their coach and wouldn't have the authority to do so. Well, Jesus, through his suffering and obedience, became the perfect candidate as a high priest. But the Jews knew that none of that mattered if he wasn't chosen. Well, Jesus might have been qualified. It wouldn't have mattered because it wouldn't have been effective. And so here the author writes, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed. And then quotes from Psalm 2, a psalm that reminds us that God the Father had appointed him as eternal son. And Psalm 110 that shows that God the Father also had appointed him as a priest forever, a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek's a, a man we're going to come across again, but at this point, what you need to know is that he was someone that wasn't a Jew or in the line of Aaron that was chosen by God to be a priest. What he's saying is Jesus' priesthood came like his out of the sovereign purpose of God. Unlike the priests of that day, Jesus' priesthood would never end. The priesthoods of that day, their priesthood ended when they died. But Jesus' priesthood lasts forever. The, the complete citation from Psalm 110 makes the point clear. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Well, that should give us incredible assurance. After all, how do we know that Jesus' death was effective for us? We know because God appointed him to the task. Jesus didn't merely have good intentions. He, he had and continues to have the, the power and the whole authority to secure and hold our place in heaven. He keeps our inheritance, our salvation. It's safe in him. You see, God in eternity past not only chose Jesus to be the high priest, but to be the perfect one. One that, according to verse 9, was made perfect, became the perfect candidate because of his experience to be the sacrifice for us. God chose him to be both the one who offered the sacrifice and the very sacrifice itself. And because of that, God exalted him. And Jesus is now with him. And that's astounding, really. After all, Jesus has the right to stay in God's presence. And because we are in him, so do we. For the early church, that meant that not only could they trust your Savior and be confident when times are tough, but they didn't need another mediator to represent them when they failed. They didn't need a priest. They didn't need another sacrifice. They had a high priest appointed by God that represented them. Which leads us to the last thing we want to notice briefly, that we should hold fast to our confession because Jesus is our high priest, as our high priest is the source of our eternal salvation. Look at verse 9, chapter 5. The author writes this, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who believe him. You know, when Jesus hung on the cross and said, it was finished, it is finished, he wasn't saying, just saying that his job was done or his suffering was finished. He was saying the sacrifice was finished. Before Jesus in the temple, there was this unending, continual offering of sacrifices day after day, year after year, thousands and thousands of animals lost their lives. But each and every sacrifice only bought time. It had to be done over and over again. Hebrews 10, after telling us a sacrifice where only a shadow of what was to come, tells us this. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, it would not have ceased to be offered. Since the worshiper, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. 
But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sin every year. For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. All the priests of all the time, offering all the sacrifices of all time, could not provide eternal salvation for one person. They could only provide momentary forgiveness. They, they couldn't provide, be the perfect sacrifice. But Jesus' sinless and obedient life made him the perfect sacrifice and enabled him to be the source of our eternal salvation to everyone who would believe on him. His sacrifice was eternally sufficient. In other words, since Jesus has paid for our sins and God has sworn to accept his work, having appointed him, you and I can be certain that our salvation is secure and that regardless what this life brings, that one day we will be with him in heaven. Friends, living the Christian life isn't easy, but it wasn't meant to be. Jesus never said it would be. Instead, at one point, he said, if anyone would come after me, he must take up his cross daily and follow me. At another time, he told us he had, we had to put him first and told us the world wouldn't understand and would persecute us for, us, for it. Jesus, he taught that wide is the gate and easy the way that leads to destruction, but narrow and hard is the way that leads to eternal life. And the apostle Paul would write that the gospel is foolishness to those who don't believe. He put it this way, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jew and Greek, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So if you're looking for an easy path, if you want to avoid serious challenges or have everyone accept you or applaud you, then Christianity, it quite frankly, it isn't for you. To follow Jesus is to set our hearts on heaven and to step onto a spiritual battleground against our flesh, our world, and the devil. It's to live for Jesus, resist temptation, endure hardship, and to stand. Now make no mistake, we have a faith, that, a treasure that is beyond price. It's worth the fight, but it isn't easy. Well, that is something the church that this author was writing to was experienced. They were living and so the author reminds them to hold fast and gives them some reasons to do so. In April of 1521, Martin Luther was summoned by Charles V, the, the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire at that time. The emperor wanted to reconcile Luther to the Roman Catholic Church. But when he asked him to recant his teaching, Luther responded this way, I cannot and will not recant anything. For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God. Luther, he held fast to the faith he professed. You see, it's just that he was able to do that because he knew who Jesus was. He knew, among other things, what the author had written here, that Jesus was his high priest. So while he might stand condemned in a human court, in the court of heaven, he where he stood before God, he would be forgiven. He was forgiven in Jesus. He knew that Jesus was the source of his eternal life not those that opposed him. Luther knew that while he might face temptations in this world and trial, that Jesus as a high priest would be there and would be there with him and had been there and would give him grace when he faltered and mercy to endure. He knew that because Jesus had been appointed to represent him and because of that, he could be confident that one day he would be with him. And he stood despite the pressure. Well, here the author wants that kind of confidence to be ours. 
Now, I don't know where you're at today, but I do know this. None of us likes to be alone in a struggle. None of us likes to feel isolated. And yet, here we find the encouragement that if we're a believer, that that is never true of us. We're never alone. But instead, we're with someone who understands and will help us if only we'll go to him. That we can rest when we falter knowing there's grace and that our salvation is secure because Jesus was appointed as our Savior and his sacrifice was accepted. And through him, we have access. We can draw near to God. So if you're struggling today, do what this passage tells us to do. Draw near to him. If you're facing temptations today, draw near to him. If life is hard today, draw near to him. It's not only what he's called us to do, but it's only as you do that that you will receive his grace, find his mercy, and be empowered to stand in your faith despite whatever situation in life you may be facing. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that in Jesus we have one who understands. We don't have to struggle through life. We don't have to wonder if he knows what we're going through because he does. Help us to live in light of that. In Jesus' name, amen.